hear the word of God. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. And the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. It's hard for us to imagine, but that opening expression, how can a young man keep his way pure, would have been on billboards in ancient Israel. As people were driving down the street, that would have been the things that would have been advertised. It would have been lit up. It would have been on neon signs. That would have been the most important question that really could be asked, especially of young men and young women, young people. How can we keep our way away pure? Sadly, I don't think that would be on our billboards in these days. It might be in our day a billboard that says, why would a young man want to keep his way pure? But in those days, that wasn't it at all. Because you see, that was the way of blessedness. That was the way of happiness. That was the way of being in covenant with God and, and being in his favor, being pure before him. You remember last week we, we began this psalm and, and it was this psalm of, of, of blessedness by way of knowing, meditating upon, living out that which is true, that which we have in the scripture, in the very Word of God, this is a celebration, an affirmation of the, of the scripture, of the word of God, and, and, and how it leads us to being blessed, that is being happy, genuinely happy. Happiness not based on particular circumstances, but, but, a, but an inner contentment, being satisfied, knowing that one is cared for. Uh, this blessing uh, is, is, is what the old paths would say, is the covenant blessing, the blessing that comes from God, the blessing that knows, that comes from knowing that you're in God's favor, the blessing that was pronounced on the people in ancient Israel by the priests that went like this, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Thus, one who is blessed would know that he, that she was being kept by God so that... There would be no getting off track. There would be no one coming to destroy that you would be kept, you would be protected. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. And, and, and when God's face is shining upon you, it means that God is looking towards you with favor. He's not turning away from you in disgust. He's not turning away from you so that his judgment comes. He, he's, he's turning towards you. His face is shining upon you. And he's being gracious to you. That is, you'd know his favor. Know his grace. That his goodness will come to you. Though you don't deserve it, his goodness will come to you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon us and be gracious to us. May the Lord lift up his countenance. Again, lift up his face. His very presence. You see, this blessing is to be in the favorable, gracious, good presence of God. That God is with us. May lift up his countenance upon us that we might have, that he might give us peace, that is completeness, wholeness, all that is necessary for real life, that we be whole. 
So when the psalmist begins his psalm in verse 1, blessed are, everybody should take notice of that. This is the covenant blessing. This is God's favor upon us. And he says, now if you want to live this way of blessedness, you must be blameless. Blessed are those whose way is blameless. And if we're thinking, then we realize we could well be in trouble if it requires blessedness or blamelessness to be blessed. But then if you know the word of God, you know something about the way of blamelessness. They would know that God forgives, that he cleanses, and he does that by way of not punishing his people, but taking that out on another. They would know it by way of the lambs that were slaughtered. We know it by the death of Jesus. And so the way of blamelessness is a way of faith. It's a way of trusting. But, but then he says, now that I've worked, now that I've given you this, this position of being blameless before me, I want you now to walk in that. So I want you to walk sincerely, genuinely with me to be blameless, to obey me. Uh, so the psalmist knows his own heart. So you notice that in verse 5, he prays. He says, oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. If that's the way of, of this blameless life as one who lives forgiven, if that's how I'm to live, then, then help me. Uh, oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. And then verse 8, he resolves. He says, I'll keep your statutes. And then he says, do not utterly forsake me. Meaning, when I sin, please don't let me go. Please continue to forgive me. And please stay with me that I may walk with you, because if you don't, I'll, I'll wander off the path. So please help me. So the psalmist knows his own heart. And then, and then he begins this next stanza. And as you remember, this, this psalm is written as an acrostic. It's, it's, it's 22 different stanzas, really, in this long song, this long poem, this long hymn. And, and each stanza uh, is related to a particular uh, letter in the Hebrew alph- alphabet. It goes chronologically through, through the Hebrew alphabet. This is the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Beit. And, and every line, every verse begins with that letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Very beautifully done, carefully written. And so this question becomes a, a logical flow, if you will, from this idea of living a blameless life before God. So if we're to live this blameless life before God, then, then how can even a young man do that? How, how, can, how can a young man keep his way, keep his life pure, blameless? How can we live a pure life? That being the question. Morally pure, ethically pure, pure before God. By way of his law, his, his standards. How can a young man, how can this way be kept pure? And, and of course, in ancient Israel, this way of purity would be well known. They would know to live in the presence of God. One must be pure. Uh, the priests who would represent the people before God needed, as they represented the people before God, to be pure. Now, there's human beings, sinful human beings at that. And so there, there needed to be this sense of purity, however, as they, as they went before God on behalf of the people. And so they would make sacrifice for their own sins, saying, I need to be forgiven. God, 
takes the, the, the life of this other instead of me so that I can live and, and be cleansed, to be pure. And then as a way of symbol, the priests would, would bathe. They would, they would bathe and, and be clean physically. And then they would put on clean white clothes in order to represent the people before God. And so ancient Israel men would know, all the people there would know, to live in the presence of God, there must be this deep purity, cleansing perfection before him. And not only that, God had given them all these laws of cleanliness and purity. You couldn't live in ancient Israel faithfully without thinking about God all the time. Everything spoke of him. Uh, The the way that you dressed, there were some ways to dress that would be ways of purity and cleanliness and, and other ways not. Food that you ate, some would be clean, some would be unclean. Certain kinds of rituals would have to be undertaken if you um, came in contact with one who was dead or certain bodily emissions or, 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 or the like. And you had to go through ways of purity and rituals of purity to be cleansed before God always thinking this cleansing before God we must be pure before him and so the question for this ancient Israelite would be well how can a young man keep his way pure because we know that this purity wasn't simply to be an external purity it was to be an internal purity that manifested itself in a particular life of purity and so while these things were external all the way from circumcision to, to everything else, circumcision being an outward sign, but, but it was to be something true on the inside too. So the command wasn't simply to circumcise physically, but the prophets would say to circumcise your heart, to be circumcised of the heart that is set apart for God to walk before him in holiness, in purity. God said, even your sacrifices, unless you come by faith, I, I don't want them. They're, they're, just, they're just smells to me that make me gag. Don't even make sacrifices if you're not coming in purity of heart, if you're not coming in sincerity of heart, if you're not coming unmixed, if you will, this notion of purity, if you have mixed motives in coming, don't, don't, don't even try because it's, it just isn't meaningful to me. I won't accept it. I want this inner sense of sincerity and honesty and purity as you come to me. So how can a young man do that? How can he, how can he be that? We know that for ourselves. And if we're going to live before God, we must have this sense of purity. We come cleansed, of course, in Jesus. We don't have all these rituals of cleansing anymore. But, but, but we have this sense of, of Jesus, who's the purified one, the purifying one, the perfect one. He's the one in whom we come. It's his death that brings forgiveness. It's his life that, that has cleansed life to us, his righteousness to us. Baptism is a a sign and seal of this covenant of God's grace is cleansing to us. But we know that baptism doesn't save. We know it simply points to the one who does. And so even in that cleansing ritual of baptism, we know it, it, it brings curse unless there's faith. Just as circumcision brought curse unless there's faith. It's all about coming before God. Cleansed. Become cleansed in our Lord Jesus. And then he says for us to walk in that particular way. That was pointed out by the prophet Ezekiel very forthrightly. In Ezekiel in chapter 36, we read this of this new covenant that is to come. God says in verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. 
And so God says, all right, I'm going to forgive you. I'll cleanse you of your sins. They, they knew of God's cleansing, of course, in the Old Testament, the pictures and, and the, the animals being slain for their forgiveness. God says, a day is going to come when I'll sprinkle clean water on you. That's obviously a metaphor. That's a symbol of, of being cleansed, being forgiven. And then in verse 26, he says, with this cleansing comes this. I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In other words, he's saying, here's what's coming. Yes, cleansing, so you can be in my presence, forgiven your sins. But not only that, I'll put my spirit in you so that you can then walk in this way of purity. So you can walk as a cleansed one. So you can live that out. Jesus picks up on this theme as he speaks to Nicodemus. We have it in John in chapter 3. Um, begins with Nicodemus coming to Jesus with this in verse 2. Rabbi, we know that you're the teacher. A teacher come from God for no one can do these signs uh, that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly I say to you, and as one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. It's an allusion all the way back to Ezekiel. The water, cleansing, Spirit, to cause you to walk in his ways. He says, you need what Ezekiel talked about. You need this, this, this cleansing by water, cleanse, the very blood of Christ, and my spirit upon you. And, and that's what it's about, to be a part of the kingdom of God. Unless that happens, then the kingdom of God isn't yours. And so here he speaks, Jesus does of this, of this same, the same work of, of water, the same cleansing. We see it too as Paul writes to Titus, in Titus in chapter, in chapter 2, uh, we, we read the very same of the work of Jesus. Titus chapter 2 and verse 13. Well, let me read verse 11. It's a whole sentence. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who, here's what I want, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession that are zealous for good works. He says, I want to to purify you, to cleanse you, so that you can live in a way consistent with that. Hebrews chapter 9, the author of Hebrews lays this out as well for us, that there's cleansing that comes through Jesus. He says, for, verse 13, Hebrews 9, 13, For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, that's Old Testament symbol, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to to God, purify our conscience from dead works. We see that we're to be purified, and that is by way of our Lord Jesus. 
fact, in one of the beautiful passages in Scripture concerning marriage, we read of the work of Christ. Verse 25 of Ephesians and and chapter 5. The Apostle speaks, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Do we know that we've been cleansed? As we come to this week of Vacation Bible School, I must confess to you, I I always think of Stella France. Now, Stella, I wasn't allowed to call her that when I was a kid, Mrs. France. She was my fifth grade Sunday school teacher, VBS teacher, and elementary school teacher, as she was for all of my sisters, as she was for my father. And she would always have this flannel graph. We don't, you were way too high tech, I suppose, for flannel graphs these days. Some of you don't know what a flannel graph is, but I always think of it as the way that we get our felt needs met. But, uh, but, um, but stuff stuck on these flannel graphs. And as a kid, you never knew how, you do, how anybody did that. They just stuck these things up there. And you would try to stick things on the wall. It wouldn't stick. But they would stick on this flannel graph. And there was always this black heart on the flannel graph during VBS week. And Mrs. France would talk about our sin and our need to be cleansed. And then she would take off this black heart. And there'd be a white one underneath it. We thought she was a magician. And... Um, And it would be white, and she would say, we're cleansed. I'll never forget that. Even as a kid, I knew some of my sin. Now as an adult, I know it way deeper. And it's almost unimaginable to think that God has cleansed me and all who believe in him. Think of your sin. Some more dramatic, I suppose, than others. And to realize that he's cleansed us. I had a dear friend in the 70s who had been deep into the drug culture and all of, all of that. And he struggled deeply with his own sense of assurance. And God was very gracious. It's a little weird, so pardon me for some weirdness. But uh, God was very gracious to this guy, Ernie Stanton to give him a dream one night. And he had this dream. It was kind of silly, but it helped him. It was, it was this dream of the inside of his heart physically and all these little SOS pads. <laughs> and they were going through cleaning everything. Just cleaning everything. Bubbles, he said, everywhere. <laughs> and he woke up giggling, and his wife said, what are you doing? He says, uh, I've been cleansed. <laughs> now, it didn't happen at that moment in time, but it happened as he believed. But, but this sense of cleansing... and. And it's good for us to linger at this moment to realize that how can a young man, how can anyone have a pure life? Well, only if it begins with being cleansed 
by the blood of Jesus that comes through faith in him. The psalmist would know that in some way, not as deeply, I don't think, as we can know it because Jesus hadn't come. They just saw pictures, snapshots, these lambs being killed, and there was a sense in which by faith you enter into that and said, God didn't take my life but took this other's. He's forgiven me. I'm cleansed. But, but now we see this one who is Jesus who stood for us, his blood for us. He took God's condemnation, God's wrath against every sin, and all those who would believe in him had ever, would ever commit so that we would know that we're cleansed, clean, pure. I, I, I can't get a whole handle around that, but it's something to try to get a handle around and to think about often. But now you see, since we have been cleansed, God says, I want you to walk sincere, blameless before me, genuinely before me. I want you to seek me. I want you to be mine. I want you to walk. This is the way now of blessedness. You've been blessed by this work of Christ and trusting in him. Now, I want you to walk that whole life. It's, it's a good life. It's the life. It's the blessed life. And so, as Paul writes to the church in Corinth, chapter 2 Corinthians in chapter 7, he says to them, he says, since we have these promises, that is the very promise of cleansing through faith in Christ, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. And you say, well, if I've been cleansed, why do I have to cleanse myself? And if, if Christ has cleansed me, why is there any left to do? Well, I think you can see the point. He's saying, in the presence of God, positionally, the way that God sees us, we're cleansed. But he says, now as you live, I want, he says, I want you to get rid of all of this impurity. Uh, when he says that we're to do that, obviously he doesn't say it's completely our task, that we have no help from God, no help from the Holy Spirit, no help from his word. No, no, he says that's not the point. I'm just, I'm just saying this is the life that you're to live. I want you to, 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 to cleanse yourself of every defilement of body and spirit so that you can bring this holiness that God has begun in you to completion. He'll help you. But understand that that is what you are to undertake. In 1 Thessalonians in, in chapter 4 and verse 7, uh, we read this. As God's talking about our holiness, Paul writes, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. So he says he hasn't called us to live an impure life. You remember, you might if you're a reader of the Bible, book of Romans, that the first five chapters develops this, this notion that we're saved by grace through faith. It's not our work, it's, it's the work of God. And, and we have peace with God now because we've been justified uh, by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so then Paul begins in chapter 6 by asking the logical question of people like me who are always trying to sneak under. <laughs> He says, well, then shouldn't we sin so that grace would abound? If, if it doesn't matter at all, if our sin didn't keep us from God, then why shouldn't we just continue to sin? And Paul says, that's really stupid, <laughs> basically. He says, may it never be. Don't you get it? Don't you understand that you were saved from sin? Saved from the wrath of God that, that because of your sin. So that you can now live a life before God of purity. So he says, count yourself dead to sin and alive to God in 
Christ Jesus. And so that is really, you see, how it is that we're, we're to live. We're to live like that. We're to live pure and holy lives. The author of Hebrews in, Hebrews in chapter 12 speaks of all of this like this. He says, verse 10, For they disciplined us, he's speaking of our earthly fathers, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to us, best to them, but he, that is God our Father, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Verse 13, Therefore, Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and, then we'd insert, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. He says strive for that holiness. Live now a life of purity. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Beloved, if we're God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Now, if you take that expression, that when we um, see him, we shall be like him, if that thrills your soul, if you say, oh yes, I'm going to be conformed to the image of Christ. Not like Jesus exactly will never be the Son of God, will never be divine and all of that. But his point is that we'll live in a way in glory when we see him that is like the way he lives before his Father in purity. And if that thrills your soul, then this makes sense to you. Verse 3, the apostle goes on, and everyone, who thus hopes, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. In other words, if that grabs you, if that's what you want to be, pure before God, now get on with it. Don't wait till then. Work that out now, you see. Get on with it now. And so that's the point of the psalmist. How can it young man keep his way pure now, I suppose it hasn't um, gotten by you that the psalmist is very specific about young men <laughs> you wonder why does he pick on young men I remember hearing this as a kid feeling quite picked on uh, uh, that that was uh, something I needed to pay attention to it isn't I suppose at the exclusion of everyone else we all ought to keep our ways our lives pure it isn't that point. In, in fact, I think, if anything, it may, may be just, in some sense, be illustrative of what's to come. He's going to talk about discouraged people. And in this context, how can a discouraged person be blessed, live the blessed life, know a blessed life, even in the midst of, of discouragement? How can a person who's being persecuted understand the blessing of God? How can that person live that? He's going to come to that. How can a person facing deep temptation uh, uh, live this life of blessedness, know the blessing of God upon them, even when they're in the face of wickedness, when they're being persecuted even? And, and so now he, he singles out these young men 
Could be some things because the psalmist is a young man. I doubt that. I think it comes from a more mature one. He may be reflecting about his own experience as a young man knows these things, so writes in the first person at that point in this poetic kind of way. But regardless of all that, he does speak to young men. And I think for a number of reasons. Number one, because he tells us that even young people, even young men, can know the blessing of God. And there's a way to that. But the danger of young men, young people, is they have a lot of energy, but not a lot of maturity by definition. And the difficulty for those of us who were once young, we know that as young people, we can oftentimes uh, overvalue the moment and overly discount the future, undervalue the consequences of our particular actions. And the question is, how can a young man then gain that maturity quickly? How can a young man have perspective on life? How can a young man know real life when that young man hasn't lived life? How can you do that? And he says, well, you live it according to the word of God. Allow the word of God to make you wiser than your years. Begin there. He says, I want you, therefore, to make your way pure. The, the world never gives that counsel. The world doesn't give the counsel to young people to live a pure life. The world often gives the counsel to sow your wild oats, to to try everything. I remember there was a professor at the University of Kansas a number of years ago who taught uh, orientation to to freshmen, saying during your your life here in the university, you should have sexual experiences with with a number of different people of both genders, just so that you can experience that life. Now... The scripture would never give that counsel. It would give counsel, no, 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 no. Start as young as possible to keep your way, your life pure. Because you see, habits of life that are formed when we're young are difficult to break when we're old. And if you want to live a life that is pure, begin as early as possible. It's interesting, in ancient Israel, children were very special. There are many passages in Scripture that speak of, 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 of teaching our children. For instance, Psalm 78 uh, speaks of, of, of teaching, teaching children. Um, so that one generation can pass truth on to another. Uh, verse 4, Psalm 78. Psalmist writes, we will not hide them, that is, these truths from, uh, from their children, but... Tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord's and his might and the wonders that he has done. He's established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach their children and uh, that the next generation might know them. The children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God. And so, so that's one generation to another. Children were often... Uh, um, singled out in ancient Israel. In fact, if you read through the, the, the rituals of the various feasts, you'll find that almost always there was a place in the feast, if not uh, more than once, at least once, where there was an opportunity for the children to ask a question. And, 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 and so Moses would say, now when your son asks you, Father, what does this mean? You are to tell him. 
So there's always this singling out of the children. Yes, they'll be involved in these things with you. And, and, and they're going to be asking questions. So make sure you answer their questions. Make sure they're up to speed on all of this because they're special because they need to learn from as early as possible these truths, the wondrous things of God so that their lives can be set right, so that they can keep their way pure. So this word, that's why we do VBS as energetically as we do and as importantly as we do. That's why we teach our, teach our children these, these things. It's a good word to parents, obviously. Uh, I, I know that uh, I would have been very upset if my kids would have graduated from the sixth grade and not known their arithmetic, arithmetic tables and not known something of U.S. history and, and, and known how to write and known how to read and, and, and be able to analyze and so forth and so on. I just wonder if we're that concerned about our kids as they're growing up learning the things of God. I, I would hope people would be upset if their kids leave our Sunday school program after the sixth grade and our kids don't know the things of God. They don't know why northern, the northern kingdom was separated from the southern kingdom, why they, they don't know things of Moses and, and Abraham and Joseph and David and Daniel. Why they, do they know the truth of the cross? Do they know the life of Jesus? Do they know these very, very important things to know? This is what sets our kids on a life of purity. It isn't sports. Right? It isn't, it isn't what they learn in school. It isn't great trips that they can take to all the cultural experiences that they can have. It's the Word of God. That's what we must make sure above all other things that they know. As a parent... I know how easy it is to get trapped in all the other things and how sometimes unexciting the whole Bible study thing can be to our kids. But that's the guts of it. We want to keep the way of our kids pure. That's it. Now, having said all that, notice this isn't a word to parents. This is the word to the young if you can understand what this means at this point, that there's a way for your life to be pure, then it's your responsibility. This word is to you as a young person to keep your way pure. And the only way to do that, the psalmist says, the only way to do that, God says, is by his word. So verse 10 He says, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. He begins by praying. He says, I know the deal. Then verse 11, he says, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Some translations have, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Other translations have, I've treasured your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. They all are getting at the same thing. Very often we apply this strictly to Bible memorization and certainly it plays a part there. Certainly we should memorize the scripture as we're able and to to get it into into our hearts really, the very essence of our being. But it's more than that. When, when, when these folks in ancient Israel spoke of storing or hiding something, they, they stored and hid that which is valuable. We might want to say, I've, I've, I've put 
uh, your word in the safety deposit box of my heart. Meaning, this is valuable. That's how the New American Standard Version gets to this point of translating it as treasured. I treasure it. I value it. It isn't simply memorizing it that will keep us from sin. It's treasuring it. It's hiding it because it's more valuable than everything else. It isn't hiding to conceal it. It's hiding to keep it. It's storing because it's valuable. It's putting it in a vault because you don't want it to leave your possession. And you do that because it's so valuable. When you come to the point of saying, this is my life, there's nothing more valuable to me than the word of God. Then it helps you, keeps you from sin. And remember God said to the Israelites, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You want to live. And what he was saying to them isn't that you needn't work or any of that. But he said when you get into the land, what, what will keep you what will help you, what will feed your life and soul is obeying me. If you follow what I've said to you, things will go well. If you don't, you can work your fingers to the bone and you'll never have enough. <coughs> Moses at the end of his life said, this word is not an idle word to you that I've given to you. This is your life. Joshua, you remember as he begins his work as instructed by God this this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you be, be careful to do according to all that is written in it for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success meaning this is the way of wisdom when, when the Old Testament speaks of success it means this is the way of wisdom this is, this is indeed God's this is God's way And so as Jesus spoke to his disciples about his own word, that word which he spoke to them, he said, if my word abides in you, it's to live there. It's to make its dwelling place in you. When we were studying Colossians, we remember that the apostle in Colossians in chapter 3 puts it like this. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In other words, it's to live in you. And and as it lives in you, as the author of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews in chapter 4, in verse 12, he writes, the word of God is living and active. It's alive. It's sharper than any two-edged swords, piercing to the vision of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the hearts. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him. To whom we must give an account. When we come to the scripture, it exposes everything. It just lightens everything. And that which we thought was pure, we realize isn't. And that which we didn't know was pure and good is. This is what we must rely upon to teach us our way. And the reason that the, the word of God is, is, is it enables us to, 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 to keep from sin is because it makes us wise. It teaches us that which is true. In verse 98 of Psalm 119, the psalmist says, Your commandments makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. 
verse 104. Through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore I hate every false way. Nobody is going to teach us. No one's going to teach our kids. Nobody's going to teach us that which is morally pure in the world in which we live. Nobody's going to tell our kids that sexual intimacy is pure only between a man and a woman in marriage. Nobody in our culture is going to tell them that. And you know what? Our kids are not going to figure that out on their own. Nobody's going to tell us. No one's going to teach us that we're to stay in marriage and work at marriage, even in times of difficulty. Unless we're married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever deserts us. Unless we're married to a believer and the believer commits adultery. And even then there can be forgiveness. We'll never figure that stuff out on our own. It's so much easier, so much more, it seems to make so much more sense to escape difficulties. No one will tell us that. No one will tell us to, to tell the truth, even when it's costly. No one will tell us that. No one will tell us that the chief purpose of human beings is to reflect God and to enjoy ourselves while we're reflecting him. No one will tell us that. We only get that from the word of God. That isn't natural to us. Even after we're born again, we still need to be taught. That's why Paul writes to the church in Rome this. He says, I appeal, first chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this will, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. He said, your mind needs to be renewed by the word of God before you can understand that which is true and good and the very will of God. So the scripture makes us wise, even the young. So the psalmist goes on and he says, all right. He prays, verse 12, blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. That verse is a great test to my own heart. Do I really want God to teach me his ways? Is that the cry of my soul? And as he does, he writes, with my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In other words, I'll speak these truths. In the way of your testimonies, I rejoice or delight as much as all the riches to these things make me happy. To think, yes, this is the way of God. Verse 15, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. In other words, this will be a lifelong pursuit. They'll never leave my mind. I will continue to think on them over and over and over again. I'll meditate on them. Because we know this isn't a once and done. Oh, I read a verse, now I'll be fine. I must learn to treasure it. I must think it through. I must really see how it fits in the plan of God in the lives of people. And I don't always get it the first or the 50th or the 500th time through. A delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. As we come to the table of the one who is pure and who makes us pure, it puts its all of this in context. 
If we realize that there is no pure way without Christ, we must be cleansed by him. And we know that he is the very word of God, the one who lives and lives within us. There's no pure way without his strength, his help, his spirits, and following him. You remember it was the night that Jesus was betrayed. He took bread after giving thanks. He gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and again after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. The apostle said, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. What do we declare? We declare cleansing. We've really been cleansed by the blood of Christ through faith in him and no other way. What do we declare? We declare that he calls us to live a life of purity before him. What do we declare? We declare that his word, the scripture, and his presence, who is the word in us, enables us to live that life. So we declare we'll call to him. We'll ask for his help. We'll ask him to teach us his ways. We'll ask him to enable us to walk in them. That we might know this way of blessedness. Let's pray, Father. Pray for me, for us. That you at this moment will set aside this bread and this juice in such a way that we can fellowship with our Lord Jesus who is here spiritually among us. And we pray that as we come to this table, God, that you will enable us to set our hearts, minds upon him, that he would fill us. That we would know cleansing. And that we would walk in this path of purity. Please help us. In Jesus' name. Amen.